Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, this is our 11th week, I believe, in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, and the end of the Sermon on the Mount is nowhere in sight yet, but that's okay, because we are sitting at the feet of Jesus as he is teaching us here in the Sermon on the Mount. And we come this morning to verses 33 to 37, where Jesus will address here oaths, vows, promise-making, honesty, and truth-telling. So... This one's going to hit very close to home. So let's pray. So Father, we come asking, Lord, that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would guide my words in a way that would be truthful, that would be honest, that would be sincere, that would be faithful to the text. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have not hidden yourself from us that you have revealed yourself to us in the very pages of Scripture, through the words of the Apostle Matthew. And so, as he records Jesus' words here to us, may we behold the face of Jesus as we listen and as we study. And would you take these truths, Lord, and change us by them. Cause us to be more like Christ. Cause us to be faithful in how we live and how we speak that we would be salt and light as you've called us to be as kingdom citizens. So do that work now through the preaching of your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, I'll begin reading here in a moment in verse 33. Recently, a Canadian psychologist and political commentator, Jordan Peterson, he was having a roundtable discussion where he was interviewing conservative talk show host Dennis Prager. Now, Prager is a practicing Jew. He practices Judaism. And they were discussing the topics of lust and pornography. And Prager said, as a Jew, quote, I'm less interested in the interior person the inner man, he means, morally speaking. <clears throat> and this lack of concern for the inner man, Prager says, is largely because I come from a behaviorist, law-based religion. We care about how you act. That is why we don't have a claim in Judaism 
that to look at another woman with lust is as if you have committed adultery with her. I wonder where he got that. Looking with lust is not, he says, a sin in Judaism. Now Prager, he obviously knows there's differences between Christianity and Judaism. In fact, he's, he, he speaks very highly of Christians in this roundtable discussion. But he knows they're not the same. But he would simply state that what matters, what matters to him, what matters in Judaism is what you do. Do you obey the Ten Commandments? Do you not commit adultery? And that you can't commit adultery just by looking at someone lustfully. And then, Jordan Peterson asks him, okay, what's your stance on pornography? And Prager responds by saying that when a wife calls into his radio show telling him her husband is looking at pornography, he has one question. Is the pornography in lieu of you or in addition to you? Is it an exchange for his relationship with you or is it a supplement to his relationship with you? And if it's in lieu of you, his wife, replacing an actual relationship with his wife, then it's morally wrong. But if it's something extra in addition to her, then what's the problem? In fact, Prager goes on to say, there is no ban in the 613 laws of the Torah, the law of Moses, on lusting. Now, not only is Prager dead wrong about the law of Moses, the Torah, that it doesn't forbid lusting. I mean, just go read the Ten Commandments. Number 10, don't covet your neighbor's wife. But Prager is really just a modern-day example of exactly what Jesus is dealing with here in the Sermon on the Mount. And what Prager says, although he is a political conservative, which many of you may agree with much of what he says, what he says here is from the devil, it is evil, it is wrong, it is anti-gospel, and it will send you to hell. And it's that kind of focus, just on what we do, based on law-keeping, that makes Jesus different than everyone else. That makes Christianity unique among every other religion in the world. Because Jesus didn't come, friends, simply to change our behavior. He didn't come simply so that we would be good moral people who keep our noses clean. No. He came, friends, to make us new. He came to make us new creations. He came to transform us internally. He came to change our hearts so that we would walk in actual devotion to him from the inner man. And there would be this real internal love and purity and righteousness and goodness flowing from a transformed heart that would mark his disciples. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what Jesus is focused on. He's focused on the heart. He's focused on internal transformation. And that's what the gospel does. It changes you from the inside out. So the focus isn't primarily on what you do, but on who you are. That's Christianity. But make no mistake about it. Who you are will affect what you do. And here in verses 33 to 37, Jesus comes to yet another issue where the Jews of his day are content with dealing only with the exterior, the surface level of the law, and Jesus will reveal our hearts. 
The law says don't murder, I'm a-okay. The law says don't commit adultery, and yet my heart is full of lust. The law says, well, if you're going to divorce your wife, at least fill out the paperwork. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm concerned about your heart. You must have a changed heart in order to be a citizen of my kingdom. And here this morning, he's going to dig deep, and he's going to zero in on our words, our mouths, that our words reveal our hearts. The, the, the words that come out of your mouth are like, a, like an x-ray, right? I had to take my son this week to get an x-ray, and it revealed a broken bone, right? The mouth x-rays the heart. And that's what Jesus is concerned about here, that his kingdom citizens will be those who are so committed to integrity, so committed to honesty from their hearts, it's going to be expressed in their words. Let's see it together. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your place there, beginning in verse 33. Would you stand, please, out of honor for the reading of God's word? The apostle Matthew writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the very words of Jesus. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. You can be seated. Well, this is now the fourth of six illustrations, six examples that Jesus is using here in order to not only reveal the radical righteousness of his kingdom, the, the kind of internal heart-transforming righteousness necessary, the practical righteousness you must have in order to enter his kingdom. But also he's revealing here how the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, had misunderstood and misinterpreted God's law. They had gotten God's law, the law of Moses, wrong. They had understood it wrongly. They had taught it wrongly. And so again, just like divorce we saw last week, they were perverting and distorting the law. Now, how so? Well, here's how. They had made it merely about external behavior. It was all about external behavior, but it didn't touch the heart. And friends, that's what Jesus is after. He's after your heart, the interior man. And so he's using these six examples to illustrate this. And he's using the same formula, notice, where he says, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Notice in our text here again this morning, verse 33. You've heard that it was said again to those of old, verse 34, but I say to you. Meaning, here's what you have been taught, wrongly taught, as we've seen with anger, as we've seen with lust, as we've seen with divorce. But here is the true meaning, here's the true intent of God's law, and it goes much deeper than external behavior. It touches your heart. 
all the way to the heart. So if his teaching on anger and lust and divorce wasn't practical and personal enough, now he gets to an issue that touches all of us. Our words, our mouths, what we say gets us in more trouble than we would like to admit. Amen? The great hymn writer and pastor John Newton famously wrote this, quote, notice, If the tongue is frequently without a bridle, if it may be observed that a person often speaks lightly of God and of divine things, proudly of himself, harshly of his fellow man, if it can be affirmed with truth that he is a liar, a talebearer, a railer, a flatterer, or a jester, then whatever other good qualities he may seem to possess, his speech betrays him, he deceives himself, and his religion is in vain. Our words matter. And so this morning, that's what Jesus is going to address. He's going to address our words, but not just our words. He's going to address our vows, the promises that we make. Are we honest? Are we truth tellers? Do we always tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Do we do what we say we're going to do with honesty and integrity? And so at the risk of being really uncreative and lazy this morning, I'm going to follow the exact same outline as I did last week because the text follows the exact same outline as last week. So let me give you the three headings we're going to look at this text under this morning. Number one, what the law taught about oath-taking. Verse 33, and we're going to go to the Old Testament as well to see this. What the law taught. Second, what the Pharisees taught about oath-taking. And you'll see this in verses 34 and following, how they've misapplied the Old Testament teaching. And then thirdly, what Jesus teaches about oath-taking. And you'll see that in verses 34 and following. And then we'll look at some practical applications at the end. So number one, first, what the law taught about oath-taking. Now, it might be helpful if we just begin at first by explaining what does Jesus mean in verse 34 by an oath or a, a vow? What is an oath? What is a vow? Well, an oath or a vow, it is a solemn promise. Committing oneself to do something and often in Jesus' day, it's true in our day too, but in Jesus' day, the validity of that oath was affirmed by appealing to something greater than yourself in order to bear witness, in order to testify to that promise that you are making is true, that it should be kept. And also calling down judgment if that promise was broken. So, for example, Leon Morris, commentator, writes, An oath is a solemn statement affirmed to be true before God. Now, you know this, okay? You, you get this. You understand what an oath is. You understand what a vow is, right? Um, I, I tried to think this week of all the, the formalized oaths or vows that I've taken in my life, and I can only really think of two. Two, I guess, that you could say would be really public vows or oaths. Uh, the first one was my wedding vows. Make promises before God, 
witnesses, keep your wedding vows. That was the first one I could think of. And then the second one, there may be more, but the only other one I could think of was a little over six years ago when Lauren and I stood before a judge at our youngest son's adoption hearing and we took an oath to love him, to care for him, to welcome him into our family. Those were the only two formalized oaths or vows that I could think of in my life. Maybe you can think of those situations in your life as well. But listen, we understand this at a very practical level too, like a a day-to-day level, don't we? Even as young children, we understood that a double pinky promise carried greater weight than if you didn't double pinky promise. I cross my heart and hope to die. Get over that. Or I swear to God. Or as, as God is my witness, I'm telling the truth. Or I swear on my grandmother's grave. And we take an oath, we take a vow, some kind of solemn testifier attached to it so that others believe they can trust us now. It's just sort of an instinctive thing, right? I mean, even as young children, we, we, we know that in this world full of liars, okay, it, they, they said this, they, they, they swore to God, they swore on mother's grave, so now their words are believable, now their words are trustworthy, now they're actually reliable and can carry more weight. And believe it or not, the Old Testament actually has a lot to say about vows and oath-taking. Look there, verse 33. Jesus says again, you've heard that it was said, so just like anger, just like lust, just like divorce, you've heard that it was said to those of old, those under the old covenant, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, you're going to search in vain to try to find an exact reference, chapter and verse, to this quote here. From Jesus. No, what Jesus is doing here is he's actually combining several Old Testament passages, several places in the Old Testament, in order to give us really what the, the sum total teaching of, of the Old Testament law was on the topic of oaths and swearing, a vow. So this is, this is a summary here, statement of the Old Testament. Because God had particular things to say to his people in the Old Testament about how they were to take vows and oaths. Let me just give you a sampling. First, Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. These will be up on the screen for you as well. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, so he's making a promise to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So, the basic teaching, if you make a promise, if you make a vow to do something, then do what you say. And this is tied, friends, to the deepest theology possible. That our God speaks, and when he speaks, it's true. Or how about this one? Number, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. Look what Moses says here, Deuteronomy 23. If 
you make a vow to the Lord your God. You shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. So, if you make a promise, God will hold you to that promise. He's going to hold you accountable. If you say you'll do something, then it becomes a command in your life, and if you don't do it, it's sin. That's what he's saying. Verse 22, but if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And so, notice, you make a vow to the Lord, the Lord holds you accountable to it. So, for example, at your marriage ceremony, when you made vows before the Lord, those vows are going to be brought up to you on the last day. The promises that you've made, God will hold you accountable to the vows you've made. In fact, this is why I think Jesus turns here next to this topic of vows after he's just kept, talked about keeping your vows in marriage. This is also one of the big lessons, parents, we are often trying to teach our children that, and live out before them, and when we don't, we need to repent. You do what you say you're going to do. Finally, Leviticus 19, verse 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So in other words, summary of the Old Testament, here it is. If you say it, you do it. You be a man of your word. You be a woman of your word. You do what you say you're going to do. You don't bail when it gets hard. You don't bail because it's tough or because it's difficult. No, we do what we said because we said we would do it. And that's what the law teaches. That's the summary of the Old Testament law. And then undergirding all of that, all of that is Exodus 20, verse 7. It's one of the big ten. Ten commandments. Here it is. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we often think that as, and take that as not cursing, not swearing, right? Using God's name as a swear word. And that would be a right application. We shouldn't do that. We should only have wholesome words that come out of our mouths. But not only does that verse have to do with not cursing, but when you promise something in God's name and you don't do it, you are, in essence, treating God's name in vain. Useless. Frivolous. Like it's a small thing. And God calls that sin. So note here, the Old Testament law never forbid, forbid one from taking an oath. If a man vows, a vow to the Lord. Nor does it say not to take an oath even in God's name. What does it say? 
don't swear by my name falsely. Instead, what's he forbidding? The Old Testament. It's forbidding irreverent oaths. Making light use of God's name. Not keeping your word. Not doing what you say you're going to do. So in other words, it's breaking the third commandment, taking his name in vain, and it's breaking the ninth commandment, bearing false witness, and we call that lying. So, the two main things that stand out here in this sampling of what the law says about oaths, here are the two main things. Truthfulness and trustworthiness. Truthfulness and trustworthiness. What we say ought to be the truth. It ought to correspond to reality. And what we say we're going to do, we ought to do it. Trustworthy. So verse 33, look again. You shall not swear falsely, tell the truth, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Keep your word. Now, if that's what the Old Testament law taught about oaths, then what were the Pharisees teaching instead? How how had they distorted it? How had they twisted and misinterpreted what the law was teaching? Here's the second heading. What the Pharisees were teaching about oath-taking. What the Pharisees taught. We saw what the law taught, now what the Pharisees taught. Look at verse 34. Jesus seems, upon first glance, to contradict or to say something different than what the law says. Verse 33 You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So if you make an oath, if you make a vow, you keep it. But verse 34, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So then, the Old Testament allowed for oaths and vows, but now Jesus says his disciples should never take oaths and vows? How are we to understand what Jesus is saying here? And the answer is found in understanding how the Pharisees had twisted what the Old Testament taught concerning oaths. And here's, here's what they had done. They had concocted and created this system of oath taking that in essence allowed you to take a vow and not keep it. In other words, it was a legal loophole that allowed them to lie, to swear, almost using God's name, and not really mean it. So in other words, they had learned the third grade rule of making that double pinky promise, but then crossing your fingers behind your back, and that became invalid. A sort of holy dishonesty with a veneer of religion. And by doing that, they had perverted the law of God. Look at what Kent Hughes, author Kent Hughes writes here. He says this, quote, The problem in Jesus' time was that somewhere along the line, some rabbis began to teach that an oath was not binding if it did not include God's name or imply it. Therefore, if you swore by your own or someone else's life or the life of the king or by some object, but did not mention or allude to the name of God, you were not bound. The Mishnah, which is a book of Jewish oral traditions and teachings, 
the Mishnah devotes one whole section to oaths to an elaborate discussion of when oaths are binding and when they're not. For instance, one rabbi taught that if one swore by Jerusalem, one was not bound. But if one swore toward Jerusalem, it was binding because it was closer to God's name. All of this produced a profound spiritual schizophrenia. I'm not telling the truth, but I'm really not lying. Do you see? So in other words, and you can go and read oral tradition of Jews this afternoon if you want to. In other words, they had an elaborate two-step system here. Two steps. What were those two steps? Here they are. Follow me, because this is, clo- this is important. It's tricky. Here are the two steps. Step number one. Here's what, here's what it is. They would say, okay, God's name is so holy. And it is. It's so holy, we shouldn't even mention it. And so when we swear, let's not say Yahweh, let's say Jerusalem. Let's say heaven, let's say the temple. No, let's not swear using God's name, but using the things that surround God's name. Now that seems really holy, doesn't it? That was step one. Here's step two. But when we don't swear by God's name, then we don't have to keep our promises. Now that's a really slick move. So you make a vow, you make a promise, but I don't mean it because I said by heaven, not by Yahweh. Sermon on the Mount scholar Charles Quarles writes this, quote, The rabbis of Jesus' day had developed a system of oaths in which people could evade the obligation to be honest through carefully crafted oath formulas. Religious on the outside, evil and wickedness on the inside. In fact, notice, that's what Jesus is addressing here. Look there, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, verse 35, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, verse 36, and do not take an oath by your head. So this is what the Pharisees were swearing by, and then not keeping their oaths. Now, you you have to sort of read between the lines to get that there. And I want to be very clear that it, it isn't necessary that you go and study Jewish oral tradition in order to get that. No. You, you don't have to go outside the Bible to actually understand this is exactly what they're doing. Because, in fact, Matthew gives us an inspired commentary on what the Pharisees of his day were doing with oaths in Matthew chapter 23. So turn there. Look there. Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. Jesus is pronouncing woes. He's pronouncing judgments on Israel's religious leaders. And he gives us here an inspired commentary written down from Jesus' lips on how they were abusing the Old Testament teaching on oaths and vows. Look at verse 16, Matthew 23. 
Woe to you, blind guides. Judgment on you. Who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. It's no big deal. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Oh, do you see what they're doing there? If you swear by the temple, well, that's no biggie. Because you didn't swear by God's name. But had I sworn by the gold of the temple, well, then I would be bound to that oath. Why? Well, because the gold of the temple is in the holy place, and that's where God's presence dwelt, which is closer to God, and therefore I'm bound. So the closer it gets to God, the more honest you had to be, but the further away it was from his name and his presence, well, you could fudge a little bit. Verse 17, hmm, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred? <laughs> so inconsistent, guys. And you, Pharisees, say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, oh, well, he's bound to his oath. Sanctified lying. Holy deceit. Verse 19, Jesus says, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift of, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, and whoever, by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and by him who dwells in it, the Lord. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. So in essence, they had created this system that enabled them to lie and look holy doing it. And in other words, there were levels of seriousness when it came to deceit. And what did they do? Well, not only did it promote dishonesty and deceit, but it allowed them to look holy on the outside, and yet all the while it's dry, dead bones on the inside. Now... Before you go judging these guys, you bunch of hypocrites, you, you guys are a bunch of dopes, friends, we do this very same thing all the time. Uh, it's just a little white lie, white lie, well, at least it's part of the truth, what's that? And Jesus says, no. Because then, look at verses 34 to 36, he begins to walk it back and show the truth behind their deceit. And then in verse 37, the kind of radical truthfulness, the radical trustworthiness, the radical honesty that he demands of his disciples. Third heading, what Jesus teaches about oath-taking, verses 34 to 37. Look there, in verses 34 to 36, Jesus is going to give here four examples, four illustrations of why the Pharisees' elaborate system of lying doesn't work. And then in verse 37, he gives the kind of radical truthfulness and honesty his kingdom citizens should have. 
So first notice these four illustrations. Look there, verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Now, the question always arises, is Jesus saying that Christians should never take an oath or a vow? I'll say more about that in a moment when we get to the application. But I think the answer is no. No, he isn't saying that. He isn't saying a Christian can never take an oath, can never take a vow. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, if you're going to play these kinds of games with oaths, then I'm just going to do away with them altogether. Don't take one at all. Because then, notice he gives four illustrations of showing how this twisting of oaths by the Pharisees won't actually work. It's, it's illogical. Look at verse 34. Okay, okay, you guys. You won't swear by God, but don't even swear by heaven either. Why? For it's the throne of God. Verse 35. You can't swear by the earth either. Why? Well, because it's the footstool of God. You can't Make an oath appealing to Jerusalem. Why? Well, because it's the city of God. City of the great king. In fact, don't even swear by your own head. Why? Because you can't change the color of even one hair on your head. Ladies, sorry to burst your bubble. You may dye it, but you're not changing the color. What's Jesus saying? When you swear by the temple, it's my temple. When you swear by heaven, it's my heaven. When you swear by earth, that's my footstool. When you swear by your head, that head belongs to me. I made it, I colored it, and you think you can avoid taking my name in vain by swearing by these things associated with me, but all those things belong to me. They're mine. And so in reality, you're taking my name in vain. So then cut the whole thing out. Don't take any oaths at all then, if that's the case. That's what he's saying. In other words, every oath you take, every promise you make, is ultimately made in the presence of God. Because he is everywhere and everything belongs to him. And he sees it all. So then, if this is what we shouldn't do, then what should be his disciples, his kingdom citizens, standard of truth. How, how can others know if you're telling the truth? Verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. And anything more than that, more than a simple yes and no, comes from evil. Jesus' followers should be people whose words are so characterized by integrity, who are so consistently truthful that others need no formal assurance that they are true in order to trust them. An oath isn't necessary to make their words more credible. Why? Because when you say yes, it's always a yes. And when you say no, it's always a no because your word is your bond. That's what he's saying. 
And anytime you find yourself having to add on proof that you're telling the truth, verse 37, that comes from evil. Some translations say, the evil one. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. John chapter 8, verse 44. And if your word alone can't be trusted, if it needs proof, it reveals a heart then that isn't truthful and isn't trustworthy. And what Jesus wants are disciples who are truly honest. Citizens of my kingdom, Jesus says, keep their pledges. They keep their promises. They keep their vows. They mean what they say, and they say what they mean. And they are people of integrity. They are people who are people of their words, and they are so radically truthful. They are so radically honest. They don't need formulas to verify. They're telling the truth. And so then, as we conclude here, let me just answer some questions questions, I think, that arise from this passage. And I want to give some helpful ways that we can apply this. I have a few questions. Let's see how many we can get to, okay? Number one, is it ever okay for a Christian to take an oath or a vow? To, to you know, publicly be sworn into office, to take a formalized vow People often ask this question, what about public oaths as we're asked to take in court? Or what about marriage vows? Does Jesus condemn all oath-taking here? And there have been some Christian groups over the course of church history that have said, yes, he condemns them all. No, you should never take an oath, you should never take a vow in sort of a, a very rigidly literal interpretation of this passage. Some of the early Anabaptists during the Reformation or the Quaker movement, I don't know if you're familiar with the Quaker movement as well, forbid any kind of oath-taking. Uh, for example, the founder of the Quaker movement, a guy by the name of George Fox, he provided this famous saying when he was sentenced to prison for refusing to swear on the Bible. Here's what he said, quote, You have given me a book here to kiss and to swear on, and this book which you have given me to kiss says, Kiss the Son. And the son says in this book, swear not at all. I say, as the book says, and yet you imprison me, how come you do not imprison the book for saying so? Well, that sounds rather persuasive, doesn't it? But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Fox is wrong. That Christians should never take a public oath or a vow or anything like that. And here's why. Because the Bible is full of oath-taking. The Bible is full of vow-taking. First of all, Jesus himself testified under oath. Look here, Matthew chapter 26, look at this. Matthew 26, verse 62, Jesus is brought before the council just before his death, and they're questioning about these charges of blasphemy. Remember this scene? Matthew 26, 62, and the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Now everybody there, everybody there would know and understood that the high priest was putting Jesus under oath. 
Swear by God. And Jesus says, I can't take an oath. No. What does he say? Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so. So Jesus was willing to testify under oath. It seems unlikely he would command his disciples not ever to do so. Or Paul himself makes oaths. Paul himself makes vows throughout his writings. For example, Romans chapter 1, verse 9. For God is my witness. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayer. I'm calling God to testify that what I'm about to say is true. Or 2 Corinthians 1.23, I call God to witness against me. So the apostle Paul wasn't afraid to take oaths either and didn't understand Jesus to be barring all swearing or oath-taking. So then what is he forbidding? What is Jesus forbidding? Again, he's forbidding the kind of so-called oath-taking promoted by the Pharisees. He's forbidding using oaths in a deceitful, underhanded way, and he wants from his disciples for them to be radically honest, radically truthful. In fact, it's the same thing that the Apostle James says No doubt, with Jesus' words in mind here, in James chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So, yes, I think Christians can take oaths. Not because we need to before we're honest and truthful. But because knowing that we will be honest and truthful no matter what, it's no problem to seal that publicly with an oath. Because our word is our bond. So I don't think he forbids it. Question number two. So then, how do we fight against this very common temptation to lie and to be dishonest? And how do we become more truthful people? How do we fight this temptation that all of us are prone to? Every single one of us in this room are prone to this sin. I'll show you why I think that's the case here in just a moment. And I think the way that we fight this sin, brothers and sisters, is we do three things. How do we fight the sin of lying, the sin of dishonesty? Three things. Number one. Recognizing something about our God. Number two, recognizing something about ourselves. And number three, recognizing something about our Savior. First, what must we recognize about God? Here it is. Our God is a truth-telling God. He is a truth-telling God. Isaiah 65, verse 16, He is the God of truth. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God who never lies, who never lies, promised us eternal life before the ages began in Christ. 
Or Hebrews 6.18, we read this earlier. It is impossible, impossible for God to lie. Lying goes against the very nature of our God because our God is a God of truth. He is a truth-telling God. And therefore, He always keeps His promises. He always keeps His word. He will always do what He has said He will do. He will never break a single promise He has made. Though heaven and earth will pass away, every word will stand, every word will come true, and in Him there is no deceit, there is no falsehood. No, He's a truth-telling God. Which means you can trust Him. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how dark the circumstances of your life may be right now, He will never lie to you, and He will keep every promise He's made to you. We read this a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 6. Look here on the screen. The writer of Hebrews is recounting how God swore an oath to Abraham back in Genesis. Look what he says in verse 13. He made a promise to Abraham. And what did he swear by when he made that promise? Verse 13. Since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God take an oath? Because the credibility of his character was in question? No. John Stott says, he condescended, he condescended to guarantee his word for our sake. You can trust him so that we might have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. He is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, which also means he hates lying. Proverbs 12, says, lying lips are an abomination, an abomination. That's a strong word to the Lord. But Proverbs 16, verse 13 says, we say this to our children often, he loves the lips that speak the truth. So if we're going to battle the sin of lying, brothers and sisters, then we're going to have to know that God is a God of truth. We've got to remember who he is. And that he will keep every promise to us. So that's one of the ways we defeat lying, by remembering who God is. And that motivates us, I think, as his children to be people of the truth. But second, we have to recognize also something about ourselves. We've got to recognize something about God, and we've got to recognize something about ourselves. That by nature, we are all liars. Our lying doesn't make us liars. No, we lie because we are by very nature liars. And we live in a culture of lies. Everywhere we turn, bias in the media, false advertising, broken promises by politicians, slander in the office on Monday morning, gossip in the hallways at church, it's everywhere. 
It's everywhere. In fact, it all began with a lie in the garden. Did God really say? And we've been lying ever since. And so we got to be honest about the problem. <laughs> and just like anger, just like lust, we must call it what it is. And we got to see it the way that God sees it if we ever hope to fight it. And our dishonesty and lying, it comes from in all different shapes and sizes, doesn't it? What are some of the ugly cousins of lying and dishonesty? For example, we tell big lies, and then we tell little white lies. Half-truths. Leaving out the part of the story that doesn't favor us, that paints us in a bad light. Or we flatter others in order to gain an advantage. Or we fib in order to get ahead or to avoid negative consequences for ourselves. Or, or here's what we do. We often exaggerate. We overstate things in order to protect the illusion we want others to believe about ourselves or about someone else. It's everywhere. We mislead in order to get what we want. We twist people's words. We take things out of context in order to remain in control of the story. Or here's what we do. We make commitments, we make promises, and we never follow through with them because it's inconvenient, we're lazy, it's hard. And then we lie by tearing others down. We gossip, we slander. This is a category I think we don't often consider as lying. How is slander, how is gossip lying? Well, slander is often bearing false witness about your neighbor. We, we intentionally malign someone. We intentionally misrepresent someone. We judge and speculate their motives. That's called slander. Or we gossip about people. It's almost always full of misinformation and hearsay and rumors. Oh, sure, some of it may be accurate, but it's almost always, always never the whole story. And if it isn't the whole truth, guess what? It's not the truth. So listen, I'm just trying to uncover the ugliness. Do you see it yet? Do you see it in yourself? Because we got to see it as it is. We got to see our sin for what it is. We can't excuse it. We can't water it down. And we must understand the seriousness of what it is. Uncontrolled anger will send you to hell. Unhinged lust will send you to hell. Unrepentant lying will send you to hell. Revelation 21.8. The liars will be thrown into the lake of fire. So then here would be some questions to consider this morning and review your speech. Is my yes really a yes? Or am I given to modify the truth, however slightly, or to disguise it? Is my word reliable? Do I do what I say I'll do? Can people trust me? 
Do I slant stories in order to paint myself in a better light? How accurate are my tax reports? How well am I at following through with my commitments at work or at school? And what do I do if I've listened to this sermon with an open heart and detected dishonesty in my heart? That leads to the third and final thing I'll say. We have to recognize something about our Savior. What must we recognize about our Savior? That Jesus, who embodied truth, came to save liars. Why do we lie? You ever think about that? Why do you lie? You know, I've found most often that the reason people lie, and I think if you think about it deeply enough, you'll come to see this is true. The reason people lie is because we want two things, one of two things. We want to make ourselves look better, or we want something we don't have. I think that's why we lie. And do you see how Jesus is the answer to both. He's the answer to both of those. First of all, you don't need to make yourself look better. You don't need to embellish the truth to elevate yourself in the eyes of others. You don't need to hide the truth because of the shame and the guilt and the insecurities you have. No, you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus And he cleans you up. He paid the price on the cross to cover all your sin and guilt and shame. He gives you a new identity. He tells you what's true about you. And then second, you find in him everything you need. All your wants are satisfied in him. And so you don't have to lie to try to get what you want. Now, Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you everything you need. So how do we fight the temptation to lie? You need to recognize something about God. He's the God of truth. You need to recognize something about yourself. We need to see our sin for what it is. And then third, we need to recognize something about our Savior. Only He has overcome our sin through the cross and gives us a new identity. Carry those three things with you and I think it will strengthen you. Strengthen you to fight the sin of lying. That's all the time we have. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.